Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, Pastor Tim brings us a message where we look at what it means to live undivided lives with our neighbors. As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now, let's head over to Pastor Tim. If I have not met you yet, my name is Tim. I'm grateful that you're here. Uh, I will say, first service had a lot more Honolulu blue, but um, there's a handful of you out there. It's, it's God's colors. It's just true. The, the tassels had, uh, God said, I need you to make sure you have a Honolulu blue cord in the tassels that um, they would have on their prayer shawl. Nobody wants to get a green text message. We want a blue text message. All right, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, if you are new, I'm, I'm grateful that you're here. Um, uh, Matthew chapter 5 this morning, uh, we, uh, we're going to start there. We're going to kind of jump around a little bit in the scriptures again this morning, but we'll start in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, if you are new with us, let me catch you up. We are in a series that we're calling The Undivided Self, and um, it's really interesting to me as I was thinking, okay, how do I segue from like, what we've been talking about? It's really interesting, and I think it's a little telling how we talk about our lives. Right? We'll say things like, oh, that's my so- I have my social life, and then I've got my family life, my work life, my school life. Like, we we kind of divide our lives up. And then uh, every once in a while, somebody will ask the question, how is your spiritual life? Um, as though those are separate things. My spiritual life is different than how I raise my kid. Raising my kids is not spiritual. Like, it's an interesting tell. And typically when we hear, how is your spiritual life, we tend to answer with, um, like, here's my devotional life when I read my Bible, and here's my prayer life, as though that's all. Those are beautiful things. We want to be people who are rooted in the scriptures, and we want to be people of prayer who talk to our Father. Um, but we also want to be people who are trying to follow Jesus in, at work. And we want to be people who are trying to follow Jesus with our neighbors and with our friends and with our spouses. Um, and even in the hard conversations, the ones that divide up our world, we want to be people. Uh, so in a couple of weeks, we'll talk about politics. And uh, we'll look, I know, it's everyone's favorite subject to talk about. Um, but like, how do we as Christians engage politics and the divisive stuff? Uh, and uh, this morning, um, we are, we're going to kind of keep that conversation going. We've talked about parenting. We've talked about friendships. Uh, I want to think today about an idea that's throughout the scripture. Uh, in fact, you find passage after passage on this one. This one is sprinkled throughout the scriptures. How do we, as Christians, think about what it means to be a neighbor? Like, how do we show up to our neighbors as Christians? Um, now, uh, typically, if, if you're new with us, um, there's typically on a Sunday morning, what we'll do is we will take a piece of scripture, a passage, and we will deep dive that passage. We will look at the context, the history, the culture. Uh, we go way into the weeds and then uh, try to discover, okay, if that's what it meant to them, the first audience, what does it mean now for us after we do all that work? It's important that we do that work because otherwise we may miss, uh, if we start with what does this mean for us, we may miss um, we actually may misinterpret it. So we do that work week after week. Uh, this morning, I want to do something a little bit different. Uh, we are going to do some context work. We're going to do some culture work, but less around the ancient people. And I want to do a little bit of context culture work around us today and our culture that we find ourselves in. What does it mean to be a neighbor 
in West Michigan in uh, 2024, like right now, what does it mean for us to be neighbors in our culture, in our context? We got a little bit of culture context work to do. Um, it is, uh, if you take Jesus seriously, which I, I hope most of us are trying to, um, it is what Jesus commissioned us to do, to be good neighbors. Not just good neighbors, to be Christ-like neighbors. It's Jesus' commission to us in his most famous sermon, uh, the, known as the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus speaks directly, launches his Sermon on the Mount speaking about this. Uh, he does it in a metaphor. Um, if you've got your Bible, Matthew 5 Jesus says this, verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except, for to, be, except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. The town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and place it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven. So Jesus says, you follow the metaphor here, Jesus says to be salt. Uh, now, um, as you know, salt on its own, not all that delicious, unless you're a horse and then lick away. But on its own, salt, not all that delicious. Um, however, salt, uh, the reason we love salt is added to the right food can bring out flavors in food that without salt actually are quite bland. Uh, so a little bit of salt on eggs. You ever eat eggs without salt? You ever have a French fry without salt? Not as good. A little bit of salt on a juicy steak brings out the flavors of the steak. Um, but on its own, salt is not all that good. It, um, but salt can bring to life all of these flavors. Uh, then he goes on and says, so you're to be salt. Then he says, you are also to be light. And the image is very similar. A concentrated beam of light on its own, not all that beautiful. However, light can illuminate everything around it if you place it on a stand and can bring out the beauty all around it. And so Jesus, if you follow his metaphors, uh, seems to be saying, here's what I want my followers to do. Don't stay concentrated all in one spot. The world is not a horse. They don't want to lick a salt block. You are to sprinkle yourselves uh, out amongst our world. Bring out the natural flavors of our world, the goodness of our, like, bring it out. You are to be light, uh, not just a beam of light hidden. You are to be a light that illuminates the darkness all around us. This is the mission of the church. Um, we are to be these kinds of people who uh, shine light, not just for ourselves, but for, for others. Now, um, if this is the mission of the church, it's really important that we remember this, especially when we consider our world. Let's do a little context on our world. This is a sarcophagus. Transitions are overrated. <laughs> this is a sarcophagus. A sarcophagus. Uh, now, um, why do I bring up a sarcophagus? A sarcophagus comes from two Greek words smashed together. Sarx, which means flesh, and phagos, which means eater. Sarcophagus. Flesh, literally flesh eater. Uh, it's an ancient device, a uh, burial device. Uh, you, the ancients, believe many ancient religions and cultures. This is not our, our heritage, but a lot of ancient world religions believed that the soul of a person was good and the flesh was bad. And so when you die, your soul's trying to get out of your body, but it has to get through the flesh. So we have to eat away the flesh. And so they would place a deceased person inside of a sarcophagus and they would 
fill it with maggots and worms and other fun creatures to eat away the flesh so that your soul could escape. Flesh eater. Uh, they would deflesh you. Now, this process of defleshing, the reason I tell you this, has a name. The ancients referred to this process of defleshing someone as excarnation. Excarnate. Carne is flesh. Excarnation, to deflesh. And the reason I tell you that is because a couple years ago, I uh, read a book by a Canadian philosopher named Charles Taylor. The book is called A Secular Age. Anyone try to read this book? It's dense. Uh, it was a Tierra Marshall, if you know Tierra, um, used to pastor here. It was, it was one of her favorites, and so I said, I'll give it a go. She's smarter than me. It was a hard read, but it was an interesting read if you could get through a lot of the heady stuff. Charles Taylor, Canadian philosopher, he makes the claim in the book that you and I now live in a world, what he says, as an age of excarnation. We are a defleshed people. Uh, he makes the case that essentially we have entered into an era where we have lost sight of what it means to be fully alive and fully human. Uh, now, um, if we're Christians, we know that a couple things. First, this word excarnation sounds like another word that as Christians we talk about a lot. Incarnation, right? Incarnation is one of the central theologies uh, that, that our whole faith is rooted in, that, that the word... Jesus became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. That God didn't just stay distant, but God actually took on flesh and became like us. What we also know is true is that Jesus had a message. Again and again, he said, John 10, 10, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly, have a, a full life, a good life. Uh, that's his mission, to help us become fully alive, aware of who we are. Um, but Taylor says, Charles Taylor, if you take a Canadian philosopher, seriously. He claims that we are moving in the opposite direction. We are actually becoming less human, less alive. Here's why he makes the case. Uh, he says that there were things that up until very recently, modern, modern society, there were, we used to carry knowledge in our bodies. And we are growing increasingly uh, disconnected from our ability to carry knowledge within us. Many of you uh, may have learned to cook from your grandmother. And when your grandmother baked or cooked, did she have measuring cups? And probably not. I know my grandmother didn't. She would just kind of know. She carried the knowledge inside of her. So she'd pour the flour, pour the sugar. When she needed salt, did she like measure it out in a little teaspoon? She took her fingers, right? She had an infleshed, incarnate knowledge of how to bake. We've lost that. Uh, maybe you've heard of the Italian violin maker, Antonio Stradivari. Stradivari. I asked Jared, I don't, how do I pronounce his name? And then he did, and I'm like, I can't do that. Um, but I think it's Stradivari. That's how he goes. English people, Americans say it this way. So Stradivari, uh, if you're familiar, uh, Stradivarius violins are the most well-known, famous violins in the world. There's about 500 uh, or so of them left. And if you can get your hands on them, you should get one because they're worth millions of dollars. Uh, and the reason they're so uh, famous and so coveted is not just because of the name, uh, although that's a piece of it, uh, but what any violin player will tell you if they've heard it played is that there's a sound the Stradivarius violins produce that, we, that no other violin produces, not the same kind of sound. And the issue is we have no idea how to replicate it. 
No idea. We, uh, he didn't leave behind any formulas, and he didn't leave behind any measurements. And we cannot, with our sophisticated technology, recreate a Stradivarius violin. We cannot do it. Because the way he created his violins, he didn't need to write it down and create measurements. He knew. He would tell uh, how, the, how thick the, to make the varnish by how it smelled. He would know how much to put on the violin based on how it felt to his fingertips. It was incarnate knowledge. Um, but Taylor says we are entering into a new day and age. Uh, in 2011, uh, there uh, was a study done. And uh, the study is revealing because this is our culture, right? Like we don't carry information in our bodies. We carry information out there. It's in a cloud. Somewhere there's a cloud and it's holding all of my things. There's a cloud out there. It's got all of our data. It's got all of our information. And we have access to that information anytime we pull out of a, a device that we keep in our pockets or our purses. Information's out there. Um, there was a study done in 2011 where it took a group of people and split them into two. And both groups were given a piece of paper with information on the paper. And then they were told, review the information for five minutes. And at the end of five minutes, you're going to be asked to recall the information. One group, they said, you're going to be asked to recall the information, but you can look at the paper. The other group was told, you're going to be asked to recall the information, but you don't get access to the paper. Now, this is not surprising, but the group that didn't have access to the paper ended up memorizing or, memorizing or internalizing far more of the information. Those researchers then wanted to see how that affected uh, the way we th- handle the internet, um, when we have all this information always out there. And they coined, based on a handful of follow-up studies, what they refer to as the Google effect. And essentially, the Google effect states that we are getting dumber. Um, The Google effect says that as a people, we have access to more information than any human being ever before us in all of human history. We, we have access to it, and not only do we have access to it, we actually bump into information more. We ask a question, and before you had to go to a library and find it on the thing, and now you, you, you want to know, why is it Honolulu blue? And you Google it, and you discover, oh, this is why it's Honolulu blue. Okay, now I know that, except we don't retain that information. Uh, it's the Google effect. As long as we tend to believe that the information is accessible to us, we don't need to store the information in our bodies. Another way to think of it, uh, another example, same point. Uh, if you were to lose your phone, okay, and you need to call somebody, like, oh, no, this is an emergency, but I, I lost my phone. How many phone numbers do you know? Does anyone have 10 phone numbers committed by memory? A couple, okay. The whole family here, though, you guys, rock stars. Um, anybody have less than five phone numbers that they could actually rattle off? Yeah, yeah, me too. Uh, anybody, anybody have less than one? Yeah, a couple, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, uh, I realized as I was thinking through this example that I know my wife's number. I, I have a, a good friend that I call all the time and I have no idea because I just push his name. I don't need to know his number. Uh, I know my wife's number and 1-800-CALL-SAM. <laughs> That's it. Those are the two numbers I have inside my body. I, I suppose both are helpful, maybe, in a crisis. Um, but we just don't hold that information. Now, I was born in the 1900s. <laughs> Sound old every time I say that. In the 1900s, you would have a phone. And I actually, I remember my first phone was one of the 
Those phones, those aren't numbers, so I don't know how you work that thing. Um, but like you, it, like you had to, and you, now you could write the numbers down, and, and you, know, you had those lists of numbers, but you also just learn the numbers. If I'm going to call grandpa every day, I should learn grandpa's number. If I'm going to call mom and dad every day, I should learn their number. If I'm going to call my friend every day, I'm going to learn their number. Some of you actually have numbers of friends from when they were kids in your brain, and your best friend, you don't know their number. Or you remember an ex's number and you don't know your spouse's number. Right? Like, don't, don't look at them. That's, not, that's a long car ride home. Uh, we have become ex-carnational people. Ex-carnational people. Um, and in some ways, this is a blessing. Like, you know, we don't need to carry all of that information in us. It's not all needed. Um, but in some ways, uh, there's some unfortunate side effects. You're aware of these side effects? Let me just give you a couple that Taylor points out, and tell me if this is not exactly the world we live in. Uh, first, he says that we are losing our sense of place. We're losing our sense of place. Uh, there was a time when you were traveling, you had to pay attention to the road, right? You had to know where the road bends and turns. You had to look for, like, okay, I got to turn at the oak tree, or I got to know the names of the streets that I'm turning on. Be, uh, you may have remembered. Uh, having the long fold-out maps when you were doing long car trips and you had to make sure you didn't miss your exit. I actually, uh, I started driving in the middle stage between GPS and the big printed maps. Do you remember MapQuest? Yeah. So remember getting lost off the map in MapQuest? There was no way back on. You were just in Virginia. You, you didn't get to Florida. Um, <laughs> I don't know where I am. Uh, but now we don't need to know any of that because our, we just asked Siri to get us to the place and Siri says, okay, turn here and turn here and turn here. And it is possible that we can go an entire route and never actually pay attention to where we are. We are losing our sense of, of place. There was a day when it was regular to walk your neighborhood and to shop at local like grocery stores and go to local restaurants. Uh, there was a time where the kids in the neighborhood would all go to the same school in the neighborhood. And the community of the neighborhood would all go to the same local church in the same neighborhood. But then we became mobile people. And now everything's accessible. We can choose. And again, that's a good thing in some ways. And what Taylor will say, this is, this is his language. He says, because now everywhere is available to us, we actually find ourselves not really feeling like we belong anywhere. Because everywhere is available, we feel like we belong, we, we don't feel like we belong anywhere. This is excarnation. Uh, we are always living in the future, always looking ahead down the road, always somewhere else, but we're never actually here. We're losing our sense of place. Second thing he says, uh, he warns that we might be losing is our sense of community, of belonging. Uh, 50 years ago, 70 years ago, if you were going to build a house, it was pretty common when you were building a house if you see old houses, you still see this, right? Uh, that you would put on a big front porch because you want to make sure that you're on your front porch when the neighbors... I lived in Holland uh, right, out of, right out of college and everyone sat on their front porch. It's all these old houses. You all sat on your front porch and when the neighbors walked by, you'd say, hey, come grab a drink or come have some food or whatever it is and you'd wave. That was normal. You would have a garage often detached off the back of the house. Now, uh, modern era... We value privacy over community. Uh, and so we often, it's not uncommon that you put a garage on the front of your house. The very first thing you see is a garage. And uh, it's possible in our modern day and age to pull in the garage, go in our house, go out on the back deck. We got rid of front porches. We built big back decks and never actually know the name of your neighbor. 
So I don't say that out of shame. This is, this is just the way our culture's moving. Uh, Taylor says that we have moved into an era of excarnation. And while we have privacy now, that's a value, um, we are losing our sense of belonging. Uh, there's a movie that came out in 2009 called Up in the Air. Uh, George Clooney. Anybody see this movie? George Clooney movie. Uh, now, um, Clooney in the movie plays a, I just think the movie gets at this idea. He plays a corporate downsizing expert. Uh, the guy's name in the movie is Ryan Bingham. And his job is to travel from city to city, uh, employed by big corporations to lay people off, to fire people. And so that's his job. He's got to travel. And the movie is around, basically most of the movie's in an airport where he's trying to raise up, train up a new assistant, uh, a, a woman named Natalie. And uh, George Clooney, Bingham, um, explains to Natalie how to fake emotion. Okay, you gotta, they got to believe that you love them and care for them, even as you're telling them their life is over. So like, here's how you fake emotion. Here's how you pretend to care. Uh, here's how you move quickly through the check-in at the airport, because you're going to be in the airport a lot. So here's how you move through that quickly. And as you're watching the movie, you begin to realize, oh, this man is completely excarnate. He's completely excarnate. He's totally defleshed. Um, he essentially lives in the airport. He's, uh, because he can be everywhere, he's never anywhere. Um, now there's a scene in the movie where uh, Bingham, George Clooney, is explaining to his new assistant, Natalie, that his life's dream, the culmination of all that he wants, is to get 10 million frequent flyer miles. Because, and then she asks, well, why do you want 10 million frequent flyer miles? He then says, did you know that fewer people have walked on the moon than have gotten 10 million frequent flyer miles? And did you know that if I get 10 million frequent flyer miles, uh, the chief pilot, a man named Maynard Finch, sounds evil, Maynard Finch, will sit next to you on the, on the airplane. That's his life stream. Uh, as you watch the movie, you watch that he sabotages relationship after relationship after relationship, chasing that dream. Uh, and then there's a moment in the movie where somebody finally sees him and loves him, and he could choose her. Uh, and then the movie ends. Uh, spoiler alert. <laughs> it's a powerful scene. By the way, it's not that good of a movie, but it's a powerful scene. Um, so I'm not spoiling a ton. Um, Bingham is now all alone, uh, and he's completely separated himself from everyone. And uh, he has the option to choose her or to chase that dream, and he chooses to get on the plane. And there's a moment in the movie where a gentleman, and this is how it ends, comes and sits next to him and says, congratulations, my name is Maynard Finch, and you've reached 10 million frequent flyer miles. And there's a look. It's like a look only George Clooney can pull off. And uh, there's a look that he gives where you realize, oh, he sees through it now. Like, this is not what he thought. He's been duped. He's been lied to. The life he's pursuing is hollow. He's achieved it. He's achieved all he's worked for. He's climbed all the way to the top of the ladder only to realize the ladder's leaning against the wrong wall. And uh, the pilot asks him, he says, so where are you from? And he has, uh, Clooney just stares ahead and says, I'm from here. He's ex, this is excarnation, and uh, we chase dreams that don't fulfill. We live self-centered, self-absorbed lives because we're told that's privacy and that's the win, and we feel like a wanderer in our own world, never really home, and this is the lie of our modern world. According to Charles Taylor, and you tell me if this resonates, it's bigger, faster, newer, but it's all a myth, 
And this is the life that our neighbors live. It's not human flourishing, it's death. Um, and yet, we think this is what we want. This is the dream we want. Uh, in fact, there was a poll a couple years back uh, asking Americans to, to uh, describe their dream neighborhood. And so uh, the things you would expect that would make the list made the list. Uh, they want safe, we want safety, we want clean streets, we want big houses, easy access to local shopping, uh, nice homes, on and on and on. Uh, and uh, they found that city. There's a city that they found, there's probably more, but there's a city that matches every single one of the American list uh, that we said, this is our dream neighborhood. The city is Copenhagen, Denmark. <laughs> Beautiful, beautiful on the outside. Uh, manicured lawns, big homes, easy access to local food, and it has one of the highest rates of spousal abuse, alcohol addiction, and suicide. Forces us to ask the question what if the lie um, that our, so many in our world and our neighbors are striving for is actually not as beautiful? as they were told. And what happens when they discover it? What happens when we realize that kitchen renovations and manicured lawns and brand new cars is actually just an illusion, a form of white-collar, suburban, middle-class hell that doesn't give us what we want, the excarnate myth. Uh, Jesus says you're to be salt, sprinkled, and light, revealing. Uh, He's quoting there, by the way, an Old Testament passage out of the book of Isaiah. Uh, it's a form of teaching that rabbis would use called remez. Uh, it was an allusion to an old, they knew their text. It was part of their daily conversation. They knew the text. And so Jesus quotes the text, calling us back to the text. Here's the text he's quoting. Uh, Isaiah 49, verse 6 says, The Lord says, I'll make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. But if you keep reading, he says, I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for my people to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritances, to say to the captives, come out, and those in darkness, be free. So when Jesus says, be salt and be light, uh, he's not simply saying, stay inside your Christian bubbles where everything is safe. He's saying, Jesus is turning us loose to restore the land. And I think our world is craving Christians to remember this has been our strategy forever, to move into the neighborhoods, to attend the local football games, to invite your neighbors over for the bonfire, uh, whatever, to, to move in and be salt and be light, an incarnational people in an excarnational world. Uh, there's an image that I think gets at this. I learned of this <laughs> embarrassingly a little bit, but I should have known this maybe, but I learned of this uh, a few years back because one of my favorite bands, um, band, band is called Death Cab for Cutie. If you've never heard of them before, you're rolling your eyes, but they're good, I promise. Um, Death Cab for Cutie came out with an album that they called Kintsugi. And Kintsugi is, uh, the, the album actually came after a heartbreaking fallout that the lead singer had with his, um, one of his best friends. And he just went through a divorce from uh, Zoe Deschanel. Hey, girl, what you doing? <laughs> that, that Zoe. Um, <laughs> new girl. Uh, and he wrote this album called Kintsugi, and I didn't know what that word meant, so I looked it up. Kintsugi is a Japanese art form. 
in which you intentionally take pottery and break the pottery, and then you bond the pottery back together using gold. The beauty in kintsugi is in the breaks. The reason I find this image to be helpful is this seems to be what Jesus is saying to us. Go into a world that's shattered and broken. Go into neighborhoods where people are lonely and buying lies and discovering that they're lies and be the glue that holds them together. Bring beauty. Be salt. Be light. Uh, I think we have to reclaim this. It was the strategy, but I think we have to reclaim this. Um, there's been a lot of emphasis placed in the church, in the American church in the last 50 years on how do we draw people to us? Uh, in fact, uh, one of my favorite missiologists, a guy named Alan Hirsch out of Australia, uh, he's coined a phrase that he calls the, this is the attractional church. It's a made up word, attractional. And the idea is, uh, it's like there's our neighborhoods and our world over here, and then there's the church over here, and there's like a chasm in between. And if only we preach better sermons, and offer better programs, and run better small groups. All those are good things, but if only we do that, we can draw people out of this and get them to this. That's the win, we, that we attract them to us. Come here for good news, come here for hope, come to us for some help. But Jesus says, be salt and be light. What if we went to them? What if we actually said, okay, I get it. Like, we need this. We need to heal. We need to encourage each other. We need Christian community. But what if we saw this as a gathering and we said, you know what a church is going to be is in our homes. Our homes are the church. Our tables are the communion table. What if, the, what if and this is profound, uh, the scriptures are pretty clear that every single follower of Jesus, we are a kingdom of priests. What if we saw ourselves as the pastors in our neighborhood? I think it changed things. There's, this is a strategy that, um, that has existed since the early church, and it's so simple. It's so simple. It's so, so simple. Uh, there's a couple in our Bible, a married couple, and their names are Priscilla and Aquila, and they are stunningly beautiful. Um, I don't know what they look like, but the way they live, they're stunningly beautiful. Uh, they, uh, so if you want to read their story, I won't read it this morning to you, but uh, it's Acts 18. Um, here's the abbreviated version. Priscilla and Aquila are tent makers. That's their jobs. Um, but they're Christians. They're kicked out of Rome because the emperor is trying to root out Christians. Claudius is his name. So they find their way to a city of Corinth. Paul, fire wrapped in flesh we talked about last week, missionary Paul, he's walking through Corinth where he meets Priscilla and Aquila. And here's their strategy. Come to our house. Have a meal. Then along comes Apollos. We're told Apollos was this great communicator, like, ah, like fire and brimstone kind of guy, like just could preach. I don't know if he did fire and brimstone, but a good communicator. He comes through town, meets Priscilla and Aquila. He went, you should come to our house. That was their strategy. Paul will later write a letter to the church in Corinth, and this is what he says. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord. And so does the church that meets at their house. Apparently, they do this to a lot of people. Just come on over. Now, they probably don't have a huge budget, and they probably don't have a huge building. Houses were pretty small. They may have a bigger than large, a bigger than normal house. We don't know. But they probably don't have this size house. Uh, they probably don't have many programs. They probably aren't skilled Preachers probably don't preach sermons like this, um, but it's a church. 15, 20, 30, 
maybe 40 people packed in a house sharing life. This is the kind of church, they call them, we call them house churches now, but this is the church that the New Testament's written to, and this is the church that will take down the Roman Empire. Simple, simple, simple. What if we saw our homes as the hub of life and gospel in our neighborhoods? Our tables as the communion table where people will encounter community both with each other and with our God. And what if we saw ourselves as pastors? Here's the truth. Uh, You have friends, every one of you, who will never step foot into this building. They will never trust me simply because of my title. Uh, They've been burned by pastors, hurt by pastors. They will not trust me. But you have earned their trust. You can share the gospel with them in a way that they'll never hear it from me. What if we turned it loose? Jesus says, you're like salt and you're like light. Go. Um, uh, we have a mission statement that uh, for the last, uh, really since day one, we've really worked hard to kind of keep this as our focus and our DNA as a church. Um, this is who we want to be. Uh, I'm really proud of us for kind of locking in and trying to stay true to the course. Um, we have a mission statement. We've, we say it here a lot. You walk by every time you come in and you see it on the sound booth back there. Uh, the mission, our mission statement, helping people find their way back to God. Uh, every month or so, pretty regularly, uh, I'll get a question about our mission statement. There's a word in our mission statement that uh, a number of you, I would have the same question, uh, have asked about. Anyone, anyone want to guess on which word? Back. Why back? Why would we help people find their way back to God? What if they've never met God or know God? What if they're brand new believers? Why back to God? Why not just helping people find their way to God or helping people find God? Why back? I want to answer that in a story. And we'll wrap up here. Let me answer that in a story. Um, so the setting of the story uh, is my college. I went to Hope College. And... <laughs> Go Dutch. I love it. It's a... Uh... Any other Hope College? Who's Hope, any Hope College? Oh, okay. <laughs> I went to Hope College. Uh, at Hope College, there's a tradition. Uh, you, you get, you'll remember this tradition. Every year, uh, as the school year is wrapping up, right before finals, uh, the last Friday before finals week, uh, weather's beginning to turn. It's, it's spring. And uh, there is a day that the students have, have dubbed. It's either, some refer to it as spring fling, or uh, what I always refer to it as is, as is May Day, um, even though it's not always in May. But uh, Spring Fling or May Day is everything you would expect it to be. Uh, the weather's nice outside, so everyone comes outside. We've been studying. We've been, like, it's been winter in Michigan. They got black squirrels, in, uh, and they just terrorize everything you do in Holland. Like they're, 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 uh, we have squirrels in my neighborhood now, but they kind of keep to their space. These squirrels kind of get... So, like, we finally, though, make it outside, and uh, everyone, all the students, gather in this large grassy area uh, that is known as the pine grove. Uh, so this is the pine grove, pine trees, a couple other kinds of trees, but mostly pine trees, and a large gla- grassy area. And we all get outside, and we hang out there, every student. And... Uh, it's like the feeling of the warm sun. May Day is the feeling of the warm sun after a long winter. May Day is um, playing frisbee golf with your friends uh, underneath the pine trees. May Day is live music, often uh, performed by a cheap acoustic guitar and a college kid 
who's just learning guitar because he heard that it's a good way to get girls. So some of the live music's not great, but, uh, but May Day is the day where the, the cafeteria food is, for the first time, good. <laughs> uh, it's pulled pork sandwiches and laced potato chips. And you can use your pants as a napkin because next week you're back home and mom can do your laundry. Yeah, that's May Day. May Day's a day when you, uh, you realize that you've been watching her all year long and... Um, you're about to go on break for four months. And so even if she says no, you're going to cross the pine grove and you're going to ask while you're going to introduce yourself at least. Um, May Day is the day where you realize that you may not see these friends again for four months. So you're going to soak it in. Uh, For seniors, May Day is the day where you never say this out loud, but you feel it. Uh, It's the day you realize that you may never see some of these friends Again, but you have this moment, and you can laugh and lay in the grass and sing and dance and eat really good food. May Day is simply the greatest day of your life. For most students, their world hasn't, at some point, all of us will have a moment where our world falls apart. For most students, it hasn't happened yet. You haven't gone through the deepest forms of heartache. You look forward at your life, and it's all, I'm gonna change the world, I'm gonna change the world. That's May Day. Uh, um, I uh, graduated from Hope College, and I went to Western Seminary. That's Western Seminary, right there. Uh, it's connected to the campus. Um, now, Western Seminary is uh, got a number of small classrooms, and then there's a larger lecture hall that uh, often the first-year students will go to the large lecture hall. And the large lecture hall is rows like this, and then uh, they all kind of point to the front, like a lecture hall, except for behind the professor is not a wall, but a wall of glass, of windows. And those windows happen to overlook the pine grove. You see where this is going. Uh, I, my first year, graduated Hope College, went right off to Western Seminary, was a freshman in a lecture hall class, and I, uh, it was May Day at Hope College. And I'm sitting in here, but I remember being out there. Now, the professor... Uh, was a, a lovely gentleman, lovely gentleman, brilliant gentleman, had a heart for the gospel. And he was explaining to us that uh, in this lecture, uh, he was explaining to us, and po- good communicator, was explaining to us that the heart of the gospel is a God who moves into the neighborhood, who takes on flesh, and how we need to do the same. That our God is a God who sings, the Old Testament says, God sings, rejoices over us with clapping, singing, and dancing. This is the kind of God we serve. He, he's just giving this lecture And the whole time, all of us who went to Hope College were staring at May Day. (laughs) There is the lecture. And then there is the party on the other side of the glass. There is the lecture. And then there is all about life and goodness and a God who dances. And then there is goodness and dancing on the other side of the glass. There are words, and then there, are flat, then there is flesh. And for those who were sitting in the lecture hall, especially if we went to Hope College, seeing the party on the other side, there was a hunger to be back on the other side because as good as that lecture was, we remembered flesh, not just words. So why do we say helping people find their way back to God? Why back? I believe that we all, every human being, 
have these hunger pains because we remember a time deep in our being where we were connected with our God. It's why your friend who will say that they hate religion, Jesus, and the church will describe these moments where uh, they stare up at the sky or they uh, are in a tree stand hunting and they, they, the way they describe the tree stand is like wonder and awe as they explain hunting. Or they keep going on and on about the newest Taylor Swift album and how like, deep it is. Or um, they describe how they felt watching the Lions win their first playoff game and how grown men cried and like hope was restored. <laughs> those moments. Why do we find such profound beauty uh, in those moments? Could it be that at one point we were all connected to the creator of beauty? And when we, when we smell of something that even has the faintest hint of that, the hunger pangs swell up. And then they ask us about it. And what do we often tell them? You should come to my lecture hall. <laughs> I love the lecture hall. I work in the lecture This is what I do. I love, I love this. I think there's a value in a sermon. Absolutely. But what our world craves is on the other side of the glass. Not just to hear about a God who dances, but to experience a God who dances We are to be the salt sprinkled into our neighborhoods. We are to be the light. We are to be the party throwers, the joy givers. We are to be the ones who restore the hope of our neighborhoods. The Priscilla and Aquila strategy of changing the world, it worked. Their strategy, this lovely married couple's strategy, was to turn their home into the hub of life, their home into the church. And I would say that that's probably the only solution in an excarnational world is that we become an incarnational people. Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your lives and glorify our Father in heaven. What's the hope of an excarnate world? It's followers of Jesus will be the salt, will be the light, will be the glue that holds broken communities together. We will take seriously this Mission of restoring the land, restoring the neighborhoods. We will so follow the God of beauty that we'll live it and they'll look at our lives and they'll salivate. And when they ask about it, we'll tell them. Or we'll just try to run the best lecture in town and have the best programs, and try to get a few people over to our thing. Doesn't compare, does it? It doesn't compare. Jesus invites us to open our eyes and say, see the brokenness, see the hurting, as we sang, see the poor, and go to them, go to them. Incarnation. Your house, the church. Your table, communion. Your little kids, pastors. That strategy changed the world. I think it might again. And as a church, it's important that we keep coming back to this so we don't lose sight of this. Would you join me for a word of prayer? Uh, Lord, again, we confess that the movement of the scriptures has always been from word to flesh, that the word became flesh incarnate. And Lord, we confess that so often we take 
what you move from word to flesh and try to move it back into words. Uh, Lord, we confess that we try to win people over with arguments, not with hugs. Uh, Lord, we confess that so often um, we miss, we, we huddle together, but Lord, we miss opportunities to invite um, Lord, would you uh, help us to take our homes and our neighborhoods seriously? Help us to not just do something, but sit there. Lord, help us to sit in our neighborhoods and ask the questions, what does this neighborhood need right now? What do my neighbors need right now? Uh, Holy Spirit, would you inspire us? Would you so fill us that when they encounter us, they may not have language for it, but Lord, they, um, they somehow encounter you. Uh, Jesus, we love you, and we pray this in your name. And everybody said, amen. Would you please stand? For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, find us on the web at www.southharbor.org or find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. On Sunday mornings, you can find our service streamed live at 9 a.m. on our Facebook page. And so once again, from all of us here at South Harbor and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.